Well, as Phil read in Mark chapter 2, we saw that Jesus really lived the most amazing life and had the most amazing ministry the world has ever seen. He was the most loving and the most courageous man to ever live. He, he brought compassion to the hurting, and then He would bring correction to the heretics in the same day. He graciously cared for the woman who was caught in adultery, and then He would sternly rebuke the religious elite all in the same moment. And listen, church, Jesus loved people in the way that they most needed to be loved. And sometimes that came with compassion, and sometimes that came with correction. But He was the best lover of people who's ever lived. And one example of that is when He told a parable. He gave a story to a group of people that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and held others in contempt. And He essentially said, there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee basically went up to the front of the temple and he stood up with his chest out and looked up into heaven and he said, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you that I give tithes and that I fast twice a week. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you've made me the man that I am. And then the tax collector was in the back of the temple. And he would not so much as look up to heaven, but with his head down, beat against his chest constantly, and only had this to say, Lord... Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus told the crowd that day, there was only one of those men who left the temple justified. Only one. And He said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And do you know who left justified that day? It wasn't the religious man. It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. He left justified. And so we have to ask the question, when the Pharisee is over here, and he's, he's thanking God, and he's excited about God's provisions, what is he trusting in? And what he is trusting in is his moral righteousness. He doesn't commit adultery. He, he, he speaks the truth. He cares for his responsibilities. Like He is really moral and he's trusting in that. Not only is he morally righteous, he's comparatively righteous. What do I mean by that? He looks at his life and he looks at other people's lives and as he looks at his life and other people's lives, his life stacks up a little bit higher than other people's lives and he's like, I'm more righteous than most people. Thank you God for that. Not only that, he's religiously righteous. I mean, he's fasting, he's praying, he's giving his money to the Lord and to the Lord's work, and he's thankful for that. And most people who would hear this, look, he's morally righteous, he's comparatively righteous, he's religiously righteous, and on top of that, he's very, very thankful. 
And we're like, that's a really good thing. But it's not when that's what you're trusting in. Jesus says only one left justified. When we ask, what was this tax collector trusting in? This tax collector wasn't trusting in himself. He wasn't trusting in his character. He wasn't trusting in his religiosity. He was only trusting in one thing, the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And so, church, we have to ask the question because it's the key to the the story that Jesus told is, what is justification? I mean, apparently that's what they're seeking. Apparently that's what both of these two want. Apparently that's what both of these two need. What is justification? And if you're taking notes, this would be a great opportunity for you to write this down. Justification is God's act of declaring righteous. And you want to put righteous in quotation marks. God's act of declaring righteous those who put their trust in Him. God's act of declaring righteous those who put their trust in Him, namely, in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what justification is. When God justifies somebody, He is declaring that somebody righteous, righteous, righteous. Now, why is the doctrine of justification so significant? Listen to me. It releases you from the bondage of works righteousness. And it liberates you to the freedom of Christ's righteousness. It delivers you from the stifling presence of pride. And it redeems you to the happy life of humility. It exposes, now check this, It exposes the presence of fraudulent religiosity. And it brings the sunlight of true spiritual delight into your soul. Now, for all intents and purposes, Saul of Tarsus was the Pharisee in Luke 18 who went up to the front of the temple. I mean, up... Before the moment of his experience with Jesus on the Damascus road, Saul of Tarsus only knew the bondage of works righteousness. He only knew the stifling presence of pride. He only knew the deceptive presence of fraudulent religiosity. And check this church, in a very much bit of irony here, Saul would have never admitted that he was in bondage. He would have never admitted that he was prideful or that he was fraudulent in his religion. And as a matter of fact, Saul was probably a man who felt free and humble and earnest. And that's the blinding nature of legalism. It puffs you up with hot air. And you get bigger and bigger and bigger. You look like the Michelin man. But the reality is, when the smallest gospel pin pokes at you, it deflates you and you become nothing but empty. You see, all that changed for Saul of Tarsus when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. For the first time in his life, Saul of Tarsus saw himself in the light of the holiness of God's glory. What happened? The the thundering voice of the King of kings and Lord of lords came down and spoke to Saul and said, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, everything changed for Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. Church, I want you to know that when you come face to face with the holiness of the Lord, whatever feelings of personal righteousness that you have are evaporated. They are vaporized. Ask Moses what it was like to stand on the top of Mount Sinai with the tablets in his hands and the Lord of glory comes down. Ask him what it was like. He falls on his face and worships before the Lord and is scared to lift his face up because he's in the presence of the holiness of God. Ask Isaiah what it was like to be in the temple when the Lord of glory reveals Himself and smoke fills everywhere and the train of the robe of the Lord fills the place and the seraphim are everywhere flapping their wings and the holiness of God is revealed and Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live a people of unclean lips. Ask Peter, James and John, what it was like to stand on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is lifted up and God's voice comes booming down and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus clothes and His countenance is as white as snow and as bright as the sunlight. Luke tells us that they were terrified. Ask Saul what it was like to be blinded by the Lord of glory. Ask him what it was like. He falls down and has no idea how to respond. He has to get instructions on what to do next. And listen, ask John what it was like to be ushered into the presence of the holiness of God on the Isle of Patmos. Listen to his account. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. This is my point, church. If you're trusting in your personal righteousness to gain you favor with God, the holiness of God will one day strip you of every artificial strip of clothing that you are wearing and expose you for what you really are. In all your nakedness, you will be uncovered as a vile sinner who is unprotected from the eternal wrath of an infinitely holy God. And the problem is this, is that the human heart is hardwired to trust in personal righteousness. Therefore, human religion is hardwired to teach that you should trust in your personal righteousness. And no matter how appealing that is, and no matter how much gospel truth that you add to trusting in personal righteousness... I want you to know that Christ's righteousness plus anything else is a damning doctrine. 
Jesus exposes it in Luke 18, and Paul exposes it in Philippians chapter 3. And so what I want to ask you to do right now is please find your way to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, our text today is verses 1 through 11. I believe that something around the number of 7 out of 10 Alabamians are trusting in personal righteousness for their salvation. And 7 out of 10 Alabamians would affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wait, well, wait a minute, Ryan, what are you talking about? I'm saying that if you give the gospel in its most kernel form, in its most basic form, seven out of ten Alabamians would say, yes, I believe that. And I turn around and ask the question, so on what basis do you think you're going to heaven? Seven out of ten Alabamians are going to tell me how good of a life that they've lived and how religiously faithful they've been. Paul addresses this issue in verses 1 through 11 of Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself might have reason to have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul instructs the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He then warns them of false teaching and false gospels. And he, he declares that you are not believing a false gospel. You're being tempted to, but, but you're trusting in Jesus and therefore you are a true worshiper of God. And then he testifies. And he says, you know what? I used to trust in all that stuff, but I don't anymore. All of that is, is just trash to me. I trust in Christ alone. And because I'm trusting in His righteousness and because Christ's righteousness is awesome and beautiful and glorious, it makes me desire Christ. It makes me desire to know Him, to experience His power, to experience His glory, and to one day be with Him 
That is the essence of what Paul is saying in verse 1 through 11. And so, and so this is what I want you to know. Paul went from a guy who trusted in his moral righteousness, who trusted in his comparative righteousness, who trusted in his religious righteousness, and all the while, even though he didn't know it, was in bondage. Right. He, 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 was, he was under a, the, the cloud of guilt, the cloud of, of judgment. Now that he's experienced the holiness of the Lord and he's trusting in the righteousness of Christ, he now has freedom. He now has joy. He now has pleasure. He now has delight. He says, this is what I want you to do, church. I want you to be marked. I want you to be marked by the same things that I'm marked. I want you to be able to have the same testimony that I have because there are people that are knocking on your door. There are people who are coming up to you and saying, this whole gospel thing that you're trusting in, it's good, it's fine, it's well, and all of that, but you need a little bit more. You need a little bit extra. You need to tack on a few more things and you'll be good to go. And Paul is saying, don't dare buy into that. And so church, I want to give you four marks, four marks today that should mark you so that you can have an increasing joy and increasing delight and increasing freedom in your Christian life. The first mark is delight. Delight. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, he says. Now, delight, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means to take great pleasure in something. To have a deep satisfaction, to, to enjoy something. And so if you're, if you're delighting in something, you are spontaneously and instinctively taking joy in whatever that thing is. You are spontaneously and instinctively taking joy in whatever that thing is. Now, that's the biblical idea of rejoicing. Yeah. You're instinctively, you're inherently being glad in something. For you fishermen out there, you, you, you cast your line out and all of a sudden you get a bite and you, you set that hook and you begin to, to reel that thing in and you're like, I think this might be something. And all of a sudden, it comes up out of the water and it's an eight and a half pound bass. Do you have to ask the question, now what should I feel about this in this moment? No, if you're a fisherman, you are instinctively and inherently glad about what you just saw. If you're a salesperson and you enter into a job and you work and toil at, at this one particular account and then you walk in on a Friday morning at 9 o'clock and you close the deal, do you have to ask yourself the question when you get in the car, how am I supposed to feel right now? No. I mean, you're giving air pumps. You got nobody to celebrate with and you're giving high fives to just whoever, you know, you're just, you're excited and you're not confused about how to respond because inherently and instinctively, it just comes a gladness welling up out of your heart, right? Right? You don't have to stop and analyze how you should feel about these things. You are inherently pleased and joyful. Why? Because of what you treasure. Because of what you treasure. And so Paul has a major emphasis on delight in the book of Philippians. 
Listen to what he basically says in Philippians. I pray, I pray that you'll know joy. I rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. I rejoice that you're praying for me and that the Holy Spirit is helping me. I'm going to remain. I, I know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And frankly, I want to go see Christ. But I'm going to remain because I want you to have an increasing joy. I want you to have an increasing delight in your life. And the way to have that is if I will remain. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you so that you can have more and more joy in your life. And then he comes up to chapter 3 and says, Rejoice in the Lord. Listen, Paul is huge on having a spiritual delight, an inner delight of your soul. That is that's one of his main themes. And the key, the key to delight, church, is found in the words that, that follow rejoice. What are the words in verse 1 that follow the command to rejoice? In the Lord. You see, in the Lord signifies two very important things. It signifies the reason for your rejoicing and the source of your rejoicing. Like as a believer, you can rejoice because you are in the Lord. But to be in the Lord is to be in union with Him. If you're in the Lord, you are one with Christ. You're not, you're not down here and Christ is separated up there, and there's this massive gap, this massive chasm that exists between you and the Lord. No, you are in the Lord. He is in you. He is for you. And so you are in Him, united with Him spiritually and eternally. And so when, when Paul says to rejoice in the Lord, he's instructing you to rejoice in Christ because you are in Him, and He's in you, and He's the source of your joy. And so place your delight there. Let's just meditate for a moment on this reality. That Jesus Christ left heaven and He was born of a virgin and He lived a perfectly righteous, loving, holy life because you wouldn't and you couldn't. And then He died a sacrificial, brutal, horrific death on the cross because you deserved that kind of punishment. He was dead and buried in a tomb, but didn't stay dead, instead rose from the dead so that you could experience resurrection yourself. And then He ascended into heaven and now serves as your mediator and advocate in heaven so that whatever need you have, whatever problem you're experiencing, whatever discouragement that you're feeling, He is there praying, pleading, and advocating on your behalf. And one day, He's going to leave heaven and return and call all those to Himself who trust in Him for eternal happiness with Him in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's who Paul is saying, rejoice in. Like this is just not, he's not just saying, I want y'all to be happy a little while because, you know, your circumstances are better. I, I want you to delight a little bit because things, things might get better tomorrow. He's saying rejoice in this Lord, the Lord of glory, the Lord who has taken on your sin and given you His righteousness. And one day you'll be with Him and behold Him and be like Him forever. Yeah. And so, 
I think that leads me to say that, that, that delights, true spiritual delight is so different from happiness. Okay, true spiritual delight is not dependent on circumstances, it's not dependent on situations, whereas happiness is. Okay, happiness is fleeting, joy is abiding. Happiness is triggered by circumstances. Deep spiritual delight really is irrelevant to circumstances. Happiness is based on conditions, and spiritual delight is based on an intimate knowledge of God. Church, listen to this quote by Walter Wangren. Please, please follow it. The difference between shallow happiness and a deep sustaining joy is sorrow. Happiness lives where sorrow is not. When sorrow arrives, happiness dies. It can't stand pain. Joy, on the other hand, rises from sorrow and therefore can withstand all grief. Joy, by the grace of God, is the transfiguration of suffering into endurance and of endurance into character and character into hope and the hope that has become our joy does not disappoint us. You see, church, the, the, the key to having a constant inner delight of your soul is not trying to get your circumstances the most favorable that they can be, but it's having a favorable standing with God who is righteous. I do want to tell you that I believe it's difficult to have delight. I, I do believe that it, it takes work. Um, you can't just decide one day, you know what, I'm going to have a constant inner delight of my soul that is unwavering in the face of difficult circumstances. And then just have it. I believe that it takes work. I believe that you have to treasure Christ above all things for that to happen. You have to treasure Him with your time, treasure Him with your mind, treasure Him with your thoughts. You must read about Christ. You must think about Christ. You must pray to Christ. You must talk about Christ. I think for you to truly rejoice in Christ, you have to absorb yourself into the person of Christ. And then when you come out on the other side, you will be able to rejoice. Francis Chan says, we tend to think of joy as something that ebbs and flows depending on life's circumstances. But we don't, we don't just lose joy as though one day we have it and the next day it's gone. Joy is something that we have to choose and then work for, like the ability to run for an hour. It doesn't come automatically. It needs cultivation. And so church, I want to tell you, you've got to work to rejoice. You've got to cultivate it. Jonathan Edwards says that rejoicing in the Lord gives Him glory. Listen to what the great theologian of the 1700s said, God is glorified not only in His glories being seen. Okay, church, if you don't mind, close your eyes for a second and try to, in your mind, and whatever that looks like in your mind, get a glimpse of the glory of God. Get a glimpse of the glory of God, the beauty and excellence of God. Get a glimpse of it right now. Okay, 
Edward says, God's, God is glorified not only in the glimpse of that glory, but by it being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than when they just see it. Okay. So like if, if, if you go to your daughter's soccer game and the ball is kicked over her way and she just has a one-timer and kicks it right into the goal past the goalie and it is her first goal ever. It would be so inappropriate for you to stand over on the sidelines with a nice little head nod. (laughs) If your son practices for three months every single day to play a piano piece in the spring recital, and he gets up there in front of 200 people and nails it from beginning to end, and after it's over, he walks by you, and you simply say, good job. That is an utterly inappropriate response. You saw the glory of the soccer goal. You saw the glory of the peace. But seeing it is not what you need to do. Reveling in it. Delighting in it. Rejoicing in it. Getting excited about it. Praising it. Why? Because it's worthy of praise. And if a girl scoring a soccer goal or a boy playing a piano piece is worthy of glory, how much more the Lord of glory? And so he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Him. So church, I I want to call you to have delight in your life. I want to call you to have an increasing amount of joy and pleasure in your life that is not based on circumstances. It's not based on situations. It's not based necessarily on your health. It's not based on your bank account. It's not based on some ecstatic spiritual experiences. It is based on one thing and one thing alone, that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you and that He belongs to you and you belong to Him and nothing will ever change that. And so I call you to delight. I call you to be marked by disdain. D-I-S-D-A-I-N. And you're thinking to yourself, that sure does seem to be a stark contrast from delight. And it is. But I will tell you this. The only way for you to delight in the Lord, the only way for you to rejoice in the Lord is for you to have some disdain in your life you got to have it. Now, what is disdain? It's to look upon something with contempt, with disapproval, with disgust even. And so you're like, well, what should Christians have contempt for? What, what should Christians have, have disgust of? I mean, aren't we supposed to be the most loving, caring, compassionate, kind people who are on the earth? Absolutely we are. But we are to have a disdain for anything that adds to the gospel of grace. We are to have a disdain for anything that belittles the work of Christ. Anything that says Christ plus this. Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus baptism. Christ plus communion. Christ plus good works. Christ plus morality. Christ plus speaking in tongues. Christ plus financial blessing. Christ plus good health. Christ plus anything. Have a disdain for it. 
Now specifically, he says, have a disdain for false gospels. Notice verse 2 where he says, look out. Look out for the dogs. Like pay special attention to the dogs. Now in the New Testament time, dogs were not like our dogs today. (laughs) Jamie and I were in an antique store about a month ago, and there was a hand-painted scripted sign that said, beware of the dogs. I was like, Jamie, it was like $25. I said, I need that for the Philippians 3 sermon. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get it though. I had some restraint. But because you see, dogs in the New Testament were not like our dogs today. Dogs in the New Testament were mangy, flea-ridden, vicious, scavenger types that ran in packs. That's very important to understand because the dog stood for everything that was shamelessly unclean. And that's what the Jews called the Gentiles. Jews called Gentiles dogs. You can read it in some of their rabbinic writings. They called them dogs. And now Paul turns that idea on its head and he is using this phrase to describe these Judaizers. This group of people who is trying to add to the gospel of grace and he's saying they are like those mangy, flea-bitten, running in groups and herds and they will attack at a moment's notice. you got to beware of them. you got to beware of them and you've got to disdain what they're teaching. In Acts chapter 15, there were a certain group of men who came down from Judea and they taught the brothers, they taught the believers that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well now, if you would have asked that group, well now wait a minute, do you not believe that Jesus lived a perfect life? Oh, they say, oh yeah, He lived a perfect life. Do you not believe that Jesus died a substitutionary death? Oh yeah, He died a substitutionary death. Do you not believe that He rose from the dead? Oh yeah, He rose from the dead. Do you not believe He's in heaven right now at the right? Oh yeah, He's at the right hand. But you still got to be circumcised. You still got to keep the law of Moses. You still got to keep the Sabbath day. You still got to do those things. Those things aren't going away. You've got to do those in order to be saved. It's just you got Christ now too. And Paul's saying, no. Anybody who's teaching that is a dog. Is a dog. Warren Wiersbe said, like those dogs, these Judaizers snapped at Paul's heels and followed him from place to place, barking their false doctrines. He said, look out for the evildoers. The evil workers. I mean, these are people who are characterized as evil. Their work is damaging and hurtful to those who are influenced by them. I just, church, I think it's very important if we are going to heed this call on our own lives and in our own church, that Paul calls people who affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ and add morality to it and add religious adherence to it, he calls them evil. They're they're not just dangerous. They're destructive. They're not just problematic. They're leading you to hell if you follow them. He calls them evil doers. And he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Literally, katatome. Circumcision is the Greek word peritome. He says, you need to look out for the katatome. That is, those who cut off the flesh. Those who butcher up the flesh. Those who take the flesh and just cut it all to pieces. And I'm calling them the katatome, not the peritome, because what they have is only external in nature. 
They mutilate the flesh. You see, circumcision was ordained by God in the law of Moses. Why? Why? To represent that physically these people belong to God. Why? Because their hearts belong to God. This is the idea. Paul taught it in Romans chapter 2. That real circumcision is circumcision of the heart. That your heart has been set aside. It's been cut up in order to serve and honor and love and rejoice in Christ. And Paul is saying, look out for those who mutilate the flesh because they're not concerned about the heart. They're only concerned about the body. And all they are is a bunch of butchers. They are not spiritual leaders. And they are leading you in the wrong path. Look out for them. Church, I want you to ask yourself the question right now, what's so bad about adding a few external observances to the gospel? Surely, you've either been there, you've either been a legalist, or you know some legalists. Either you've been this person, or you know this person where, yeah, yeah, your friend... Your friend loves the gospel and says they trust in Jesus, but they also have to strictly keep the Sabbath. Or they have to be baptized in order to be saved. Or they have to celebrate in this particular way. Or they have to use a service that doesn't include instruments in order to be saved and have genuine worship. And Surely you've either been that person or you know that person. And you've got to ask the question, what's so bad about that? I mean, why is that really, why is that really a big deal? If, I, if my best friend says that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved, I mean, he still, he still believes the gospel. Why is that bad? I want to tell you why it's bad. Because it strips Jesus Christ of His sufficiency to utterly save the lost. It belittles His work on the cross. It makes Him a liar. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. It elevates man's ability to save himself and it diminishes Christ's ability to save sinners. And so let me be very clear about something. There is only one thing necessary for salvation. Believing. Believing that God is holy and perfect. Believing that you're unholy and imperfect. Believing that the spotless and sinless Son of God paid the penalty for all your sins on the cross, believing that He died and that He rose on the third day, believing that God completely forgives you and cleanses you of all your sin and unrighteousness, and believing that He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. That's all that's required for salvation. It's believing and trusting in Christ. I know know of a pastor who had a lady come up to him after a service one day and argued with him about the matter of, of really faith and works. And she told him, she said, I, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat. One oar is faith and the other oar, uh, oar is works. If you use both, you'll get there. If you use only one, you'll just go around in circles. The pastor replied, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody's going to heaven in a rowboat. There's only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And so church, I want you to know that for whatever danger there is that lies ahead for you, my greatest concern is not that you're going to disavow yourself from the gospel. My greatest concern is not that you're just going to turn away and say, that, that person in work of Jesus thing, that's really not valid. No, my greatest concern is that you will convince yourself or let somebody else convince you that what you have in the gospel is just simply not enough. I'm concerned that you will add to the gospel in some way. Gospel plus good works, gospel plus religious deeds, gospel plus better religious experiences. And I'm here to say you don't need that stuff. All you need is Jesus Christ. Now, he says, not only have a disdain for false gospels, he says, have a disdain for fleshly confidence. Look back down at the text. He says, I've got a significant amount of credentials on my side. Just just look at his credentials. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like, I've I've belonged to the covenant people of God from the very beginning. Some of y'all have gotten circumcised as adults. I was circumcised on the proper day as soon as I was born. I am of the people of God. And he says, of course, of the people of Israel. I'm not a proselyte. I'm not the child of a proselyte. I am pure Israel stock. I have the blood of Abraham flowing through my veins. Yeah, exactly. And he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Listen, Benjamin was the only son born in the land of promise. Benjamin was the tribe that gave Israel its first king. Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed south and stayed allegiance uh, and loyal to the Lord himself when the other ten tribes split off and went north. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. What is he saying? I'm a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. I speak Hebrew. I read Hebrew. I I was not infused into some Greek culture. No, I have remained pure in my life as an Israelite. And then he says, now as to law, a Pharisee, I bound myself to walk in holiness by not only obeying the, the Mosaic law, but obeying the hundreds of oral laws that have been written for hundreds of years that led up to this year, I was committed to obey every jot and tittle of them. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I mean, my zeal for the law of God and the oral law was so intense that I chased down the church like an army pursuing its enemy. Why? Because I was convinced that Christians were dishonoring the Lord. And as far as righteousness under the law, my life was so exemplary that according to the pharisaical interpretation of the law, I was blameless. Fact is, if there had been posters in the New Testament, little Israelite boys would have had posters of the Apostle Paul in their bedroom. If anybody had reason to put confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. But he didn't. He, he used to, as the guy in that, in that temple and thanking God for all of his morality and religiosity and all of that, he used to, but he doesn't anymore. Now he only has a disdain for it. Look down at the last of verse 8. At the last of verse 8, he gives a description to, 
to being circumcised on the eighth grade of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews of Hebrews, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to uh, the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He gives a description of what those seven personal characteristics are to him now. What is that characterization? Rubbish. Scubalon. That's dung. That's manure. He considers all of that spiritual resume of his manure. It's gone. It's worthless. It's worse than worthless. Unless you have a garden. And of course, it's got some value. Okay. Church, I want you to know that a a religious resume does not equate to spiritual reality. Um, Daniel Brown appreciated your prayer this morning during our 9 o'clock prayer time. Daniel uh, is back with us for this semester and he's spending intentional time with our, our young people. And Daniel was praying this morning for the young people in our church that they will not see this Christianity thing that we're doing as just some thing. It's just a way that they have to grow up underneath their parents and then one day they'll get to live their own life. But that they will truly embrace Jesus Christ. That they will love Him and live for Him and find their delight in Him. And that's my prayer as well. And I would say that when we sit under the Word of God week after week and we harden ourselves to the truths that are in that, we are doing a very dangerous thing, young people. I want to implore you today, give your heart to Christ. Trust in Christ. Depend on Christ and do not depend on your religiosity. Don't depend on the family that you live in. Don't depend on the works that you do. Don't depend on the morality in which you live in comparison to your other friends. Only depend on Jesus Christ. Have a disdain for all the other for salvation. Okay. So, let's transition to the third mark. The third mark, if you want to have an increasing joy, an increasing freedom in your life, you need to be marked by dependence. Dependence. In other words, you need to rely on something. You need to to depend on something for full support. Look down at verses 7 and following. And I want you to take observation of one important thing. Notice the past tense relationship that Paul has with fleshly confidence and the present tense relationship he has with confidence in Christ. Notice it. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And you see, he's depending on Christ and Christ alone. And that little word, but, it marks a definite contrast between who Paul was in the flesh and who Paul now is in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I saw all my acts of righteousness are nothing 
that I could depend on for salvation. Nothing. And that Christ crucified is the only thing that can benefit me. Now look at the terminology of gain and loss. The terminology of gain and loss are really accounting terms. And so what Paul is essentially saying is that when Paul met Christ, an incredible business transaction was was accomplished. That's what he's saying. All right? He's saying that when my eyes were blinded by Christ and His holiness and His power and His lordship were revealed to me, all the stuff that I was counting on, my Hebrewism, my circumcision, my religiosity, my faithfulness, my zeal, all of this for me at that point had been gain. Gain, gain, gain. It was all in the gain column. But when I saw Christ, it all got transferred over into the loss column. And what is in the gain column? Listen to me, church. Is Christ. Christ! And only Christ! I get to gain Him. I get to know Him. I get to revel in Him. I get to rejoice in Him. I get to be like Him. I get to know Jesus Christ. And that is gain for me. It's Christ plus nothing equals everything for me. And so that's what he's saying. I'm just depending on Him and on Him alone. Now, faith in Christ is absolutely essential for salvation. And that's exactly what he's saying. And this is what faith in Christ is. It is the constant, confident dependence on Jesus Christ for your righteousness. The constant, confident dependence on Jesus Christ for your righteousness. Nothing more, nothing less. I've told you this before. But I'm going to tell you this again. When I was young and on into my teenage years, I would have affirmed the gospel if you would have said it to me. If you would just gone dot by dot, and if you would have said, Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus is this, Jesus is that, I would have said yes and amen to that. But when I laid down at night, and, I, and when I rested, I was resting in how good of a person I was. I was resting in how faithful I was in my religious exercises. I was resting in the good things that I had done for people. And I was hoping that that would be enough to please the Lord. And I want to tell you, church, the gospel of Jesus Christ came into my life as a college student and showed me, Ryan, stop working, stop toiling, stop laboring, Stop having an anxiety that you're not good enough. Christ has been sufficient for everything. Put your trust in Him. And at that point, church, I knew the freedom and the joy and the liberation of trusting and depending on Christ and Christ alone. And I just want to liberate you today if you have that, that sense of guilt that sense of condemnation, that sense of nothing is ever good enough because I've got to do this and I've got to work there and I've got to call these people and I've got to toil this way and I've got to read this and go to that because otherwise God is not going to be pleased enough for me to be saved. Get rid of that. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. Okay. So this is the deal. 
Because Paul depended on Christ and Christ alone, and because all of his gains were turned into losses, and now all of his gains are in Christ alone, what do you think that produces in Paul's heart for Christ? What do you think it produces in his heart for the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, gratitude. What else do you think it produces? Love, yes. Yeah, delight, absolutely. Delight. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And so he doesn't just stop with his justification. He doesn't just stop with, okay, I've been declared righteous by Christ. Now I can just go live my life and pursue all these other things. I can pursue them wholeheartedly. And now because I know I've been justified. No, this is what he says. He says, I got a strong desire that I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, that I might even be conformed to Him, and that one day I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, so that not only will I see Him, but I will also have His character. Look at verses 10 and 11. He shows us His desire. He says, I want intimacy with Christ. This Christ who has justified me, I want to know Him. But Paul, you already know Him. Yes, I do. I want to know Him more. I want to know Him better. I want to have a sweeter relationship with Him, a more intimate relationship with Him. I want to know Him. Okay, well, what else, Paul? I want to know His power. Like, He was raised from the dead. I want that same power in my life every day. All right? He suffered. He suffered for His cause. I want to be lumped in with that suffering so that I may be numbered among His people. I want to have the fellowship of His sufferings. And, 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 and I also want, because of that, the glory that by any means possible, I may be resurrected with Him and experience the full, unhindered, unadulterated glory of the Lord forever and ever. I have a desire for Christ. And this is the thing. This is the thing. If you find yourself with little to no desire for Christ, do you not think it is a reasonable question to ask yourself, am I truly trusting and depending on Christ alone. Because if you don't have a desire to know Jesus better than you know Him now, if you don't have a desire to experience His power, if you don't have a desire to suffer alongside of Him to magnify His worth in the midst of suffering, if you don't have a desire to behold Him and be with Him forever, in some increasing fashion, that means you are unmoved by what He has done for you. Because the not just the logical response to depending on Christ alone, but the spiritual response to depending on Christ alone is desiring Him more than you desire anything else in this world. So I want to call you today to examine your own life. Examine your own desires what do you want more than anything else? What do you long for more than anything else? Like in a perfect world, in a perfect situation, if you could have whatever you wanted and pursue whatever you wanted to pursue and enjoy whatever you wanted to enjoy, what would that be? If it's Christ, then you can probably make the same testimony as Paul does in 10 and 11. 
If it's not Christ, you're probably deceived and you probably don't know Him because you're not depending on Him and Him alone. Would you bow your head with me? Church, you would be doing your soul a disservice if you don't track with me right now. So track with me. I started this message by giving you some examples of men who came face to face with the holiness of God. Moses, Isaiah, Peter, James, and John, Paul. You guys remember that. And right now, I want you to, I want you to think as you have your head bowed, as you're meditating about your own life and your own relation to God, I want you to realize that these men were temporarily paralyzed by the holiness of God. But once they came to grips with their identity in God, they were energized. They were mobilized to serve the Lord, to love His people, to advance His gospel. Moses spent 40 years of faithful leadership in the midst of Israel's bickering and complaining. Isaiah had a lifelong ministry of faithfulness in the midst of national unfaithfulness. Peter and James and John laid down their lives every single day for the gospel until they paid the ultimate price for it. Paul made the biggest impact on the history of Christianity after being blinded and stunned by the holiness of Christ. And John persevered in the faith well into his 90s before dying all alone. Church, you got two options right now. Two options. You can be proud of your personal righteousness and you can walk away spiritually deceived, spiritually dead, and destined for hell. Or you can be paralyzed by the holiness of God. You can be dependent on the grace of God. And you can be mobilized today to live joyfully for the glory of God, for the magnification of Christ, for the advancement of the gospel until your dying breath because your greatest delight is not in your circumstances or your situation, but in the fact that you know and belong to Christ, the righteous one. I call you today to trust not in yourself. To supremely delight not in your circumstances. But to trust in Him. To run to Him. To delight in Him. That you may know the freedom and the liberation of gospel joy.